invite you this evening to 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter's first epistle, and the fifth chapter, please. God willing, we'll recommence our series in the Gospel of Luke come September. So, we look forward to getting back to that, commencing Luke chapter 10. But over the last number of weeks, we've been dealing with just miscellaneous messages, and we come again to another one that I trust the Lord will bless your heart. It's been a subject that's been on my own mind for a number of weeks. In fact, I mentioned it to one of our elders some weeks back about my desire to deal with this subject. It's always good to have reminders on certain things. And so we come to a particular subject tonight that I trust the Lord will bless to us. The subject is that of humility. And so we're reading the opening verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, reading from verse 1. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Amen. Ending there at the seventh verse. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord again. Join with us in prayer for the Lord's help tonight as we consider His Word together. Eternal God, we pray that Thou wilt help us to take up the cross and never, never let it down until death. We ask, God, that Thou wilt give us grace to sustain the burden of the cross, whatever that means. Should it mean that we are despised and rejected? Should it mean that we are in some way misunderstood? Should it mean that we lose everything? We pray that we will not lay down the cross till we're called into the presence of Christ. How many have begun so well and finished so poorly? May it not be true of any here tonight. So, Lord, we afresh humble ourselves before Thee, begging for help in sustaining us and keeping us, staying true to Christ. Help us tonight to receive Thy Word with meekness. Use it to save and to sanctify, and above all, to magnify Christ. May we all become more like Him and love Him with all of our hearts. Fill us now with Thy Spirit. Empower us. And grant us a message fit for the occasion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've already indicated to you, beloved, my intention tonight is to deal with the grace of humility. You may argue or debate the most important graces that the Christian must possess. In any argument or discussion, of course, love is going to be preeminent. But it can never be far from the mind of the Christian the need to be humble. The call 
to humility. The entire frame of the believer is to be one of humility, not just on occasion, but continually through his life. An attitude of humility, a spirit of humility, an ongoing awareness of all the reasons that keep us humble before God. It is important for us as individuals. It's important for us in our families. It's important for us in the church. In Philippians chapter 2, we have the Apostle Paul, as some of you may have memorized the passage, Philippians 2, where the Apostle calls us to an unbelievable degree of humility. And as he does so, some of the language as you read through it, you you imagine to yourself, really? 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 And then he gives us, he gives us the ultimate example. And once we're done reading about our Lord Jesus Christ and the extent of his humility, there can be no argument against the need to be humble. There is no argument. We are called to walk in the way of the Master. I read an article entitled, 44 Evidences of Pride. And I thought I would ply up our hearts a little simply by reading through some of these evidences of pride. And it may smite your heart and conscience just as it smote mine. If it does that, then it will have accomplished the purpose for which I read it to you. So let us just muse on these things as they were written, not by me, the author is not me. So these are the various questions that are put to us to determine the level of pride that may be in our hearts in these areas. Do you look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, less refined, or less successful than yourself? Do you think of yourself as more spiritual than your spouse, others in your family or church? Do you have a judgmental spirit toward those who don't make the same lifestyle choices you do, maybe dress standards, how you school your kids, entertainment standards, etc.? I just stop there and say, there are standards that are right, but the spirit that sometimes we possess in analyzing the distinctions and differences of conscience and conduct robs any of the benefit or instruction that may be learned from someone who could help another and disciple another? Are you quick to find fault with others and to verbalize those thoughts to others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your spouse, your pastor, or other people in positions of leadership? Do you give undue time, attention, and effort to your physical appearance? hair, makeup, clothing, weight, body shape, avoiding appearance of aging. Yes, undue time. I'll just underline that. Undue time. Don't want to eliminate all these things altogether. Are you proud of the schedule you keep? How disciplined you are? How much you're able to accomplish? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? Are you argumentative? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way, or the best way? Do you have a touchy, sensitive spirit, easily offended? Get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense, trying to leave a better impression of yourself than is really true? Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin to God or others? Do you have a hard time sharing your real spiritual needs, struggles with others? Do you have a hard time praying aloud with others? Are you excessively shy? Do you have a hard time reaching out and being friendly to people you don't know at church? Do you resent being asked or expected to serve your family, your parents, or others? This is pride. Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Are you a perfectionist? Do you get irked or impatient with people who aren't? Do you tend to be controlling of your spouse, 
your children, friends, those in your workplace? Do you frequently interrupt people when they're speaking? Does your spouse feel intimidated by your quote-unquote spirituality? Does your spouse feel like they can never measure up to your expectations of what it means to be a good spouse, a spiritual leader, or submissive, and so on? Do you often complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, your church? Do you talk about yourself too much? Are you more concerned about your problems, needs, burdens than about others' concerns? Do you worry about what others think of you, too concerned about your reputation or your family's reputation? Do you neglect to express gratitude for the little things, to God, to others? Do you neglect prayer and the Word? Do you get hurt if your accomplishments or acts of service are not recognized or rewarded? Do you get hurt if your feelings or opinions are not considered when your spouse or boss is making a decision, or if you're not informed when a change or decision is made? Do you react to rules? Do you have a hard time being told what to do? Are you self-conscious because of your lack of education or natural beauty or social economic status? Do you avoid participating in certain events for fear of being embarrassed or looking foolish? Do you avoid being around certain people because you feel inferior compared to them? Don't feel you measure up. Are you uncomfortable inviting people to your home because you don't think it's nice enough? Or you can't afford to do lavish entertaining? Is it hard for you to let others know when you need help? When is the last time you said these words to a family member, friend, or coworker? I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? Pride. We've all been there. <laughs> Quite a few of those I'm sure we can all check off and say. And there might even be some of them that we will actually say, but, <laughs> but, try to give a case for the fact that you're the one being described, but it's not pride in your case. Well, you can argue that before the Lord. It should be uppermost in our prayers for this congregation, for our families, for ourselves, that there would be an ongoing, deepening work of humility in all of our hearts. It's impossible for us to grow without it. Impossible for us to advance in the Christian life. I know for a fact that there are believers that have stunted their growth because of this one area. Pride. And they have not gone on with God. They have not grown or accomplished before God what they could have should they have stayed low before Him. And so tonight we are considering what I've entitled simply the garment of humility. Look at verse 5. Of the text that we read, Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. I don't desire to say anything remarkable tonight. We're just going to look at Scripture. We're going to consider this subject in a very simple way. First of all, to note that humility is present at salvation. Humility is present at salvation. God has no time for pride. None whatsoever. And there's no way of entering into his kingdom with pride being held onto and reigning in the heart. It's not going to happen. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet announces a number of woes upon the nation on that occasion. It's, it's kind of a frightful scene. And in fact, when you consider it in light of chapter 6, when he has just pronounced, woe, 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 then in chapter 6, he is brought to call a woe upon himself. But one of those woes in Isaiah 5.21 is, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. This is man. This is man in a state of unbelief, of rejection of the truth of denial of his need for salvation. He is wise in his own eyes. The gospel is put before him. 
the answer for his sin is presented, and yet he is wise in his own eyes. He thinks that he doesn't need it, or he imagines that he has another time, another occasion, when I have a more convenient season, I will call for thee. This is man, wise in his own eyes, and it is produced, it comes forth because of an underlying foundation of pride. And God has no time for it. Proverbs 6, 16 and following, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. Yes, the man who imagines that he has all that he needs, he's not humbled before God, far from it. And so, when anyone is saved, anyone, doesn't matter who they are, when God brings someone to himself, this is always evident. You never see someone being truly converted, and there's an air of pride in that conversion. Never happens. It's one of the dangers, actually, about any public scenes of conversion, when people are called to do something public in relation to their salvation. There's always a danger that there's, there's some element of pride that can, can actually foster the motivation for supposedly responding to the call. Turn for a moment to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5. We go to the Sermon on the Mount. See how our Lord begins there, illustrating for us things that are to be expected among those that are truly regenerate. Matthew 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? What's he saying? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? The picture that our Lord puts before those that are hearing him on that day is a very simple one. It is poverty. There are various degrees of being poor. Many people who might say, I'm poor. I'm talking materially now. And yet someone may be able to say that they are poor, and yet they're still, they're still making ends meet, only just, perhaps. That's not, that's not what's being put before us here. This isn't someone who's making ends meet, getting by. This is someone who has nothing. Abject poverty. And the poverty is one of spirit. They have nothing to depend upon. They have come to a point of recognition that I have nothing to offer to God. I can't impress God. My pedigree doesn't impress God. My past, whatever may be brought before man or God, doesn't impress God. All that I have achieved, all my credentials, and none of it matters. And you see this in the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 when he accounts his pedigree when he discusses, he lays out the fact that all these things that he had that were, that were credentials, that were esteemed and perceived as being one that was most blessed. And Paul looks at them, and he could not use more strong language in terms of how he now evaluated them. It wasn't that he was ungrateful. It wasn't that he was saying, I despise this background and this pedigree and this history and this family line. He wasn't saying it with a spirit of ingratitude. It is a recognition of contrast. In contrast to Christ. I count it dung. Dung. It's waste. Excrement. The riches of Christ, the value of Christ, the worth of Christ, this alone as acceptable before God. And in salvation, there is this recognition. Now, we trust it deepens. We trust that it is further developed. As we grow in grace, we become more aware of the wonders of Christ and the horrors of our own sin. But there is, there is an element. There's always some element, some evidence in the heart of all that are saved of this awareness. I'm nothing. 
I'm nothing. Now, they're just, they're at the first stage. They're in, they're in, what was it, K1, whatever, in terms of understanding these things. And, and they become aware. They become aware of it. And, and so when they come to Christ, when they are brought to Christ, when they are converted, when the Spirit draws, there's always evidence of humility. Always. We are beggars. And in, in being poor in spirit, we are told theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes. Because they're not trying to earn it themselves. They have nothing to offer. They're resting entirely on Christ. And in their poverty, they turn to the only one who can give them access before God and entrance into heaven itself. Turn for a moment to Luke 14 as well. Luke chapter 14. I hope in turning to these passages, it it just deepens our understanding of what the Lord calls us to, what He desires, what He appreciates, what He values, and what will always be present in salvation. Luke chapter 14, read first of all for context verse 1. It came to pass, as Jesus went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched Him. Now there's an exchange that goes on, and then you come to verse 7. And He put forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, so he's, he's watching them. Here he is. He's seeing how they move around. <laughs> oh, yes. The preacher needs to see the context as well in which he, he finds himself. And sometimes he needs to be very, very sharp in the application. Well, you have it here. Saying unto them, when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, Lest the more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, that thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. You have true honor. They can see that. And then look at verse 11. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And here you have a basic principle. Not just in regard to men. Generally, we can see this in the, in the community of men, the interconnections of men, the men being with themselves, but you have it back in our text as well. It's not just in how men relate to men, as our Lord tells us in the parable, but we're told, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. It is taking the low place. There's no sense of, of, of power or prestige Now, in Psalm 2, the most lofty in the world are addressed. Kings, men who are acquainted with being honored and everyone giving them credit and glory and so on. People coming to them to to, uh, ask them questions and uh, credit them with power and so on. And Psalm 2 calls upon kings and indeed all men to kiss the sun. The idea is get down low on your face before his feet Kiss the sun. And the warning is given, lest to be angry and you perish in the way. You can't be saved. You will not be accepted by the King of kings and Lord of lords if there's any puffing up of yourself. If a king of this earth imagines himself to be able to come before the King of kings and in some way is a peer, is on level terms, he is going to be crushed. The Lord has no time for pride. So if you're to be saved, let me say to you all, let me say to you, dear friend, if you're to be saved, there must be evidence of humility in your conversion and in your ongoing walk with God. Which brings us then to our second point. Humility is not only present at salvation. Humility is power for service. It is power for service. And here you have encouragement in relation to 
why we must maintain a spirit of humility. Continually see yourselves for who we truly are. Our text, going again back to 1 Peter chapter 5, when the exhortation is given to be clothed with humility, what he is calling us to when he says be clothed with humility is in the imperative mood. So it's a command. He's issuing a command. Be clothed with humility. And the whole idea is that of a servant who dorns a, an apron getting ready for his labor. That's the imagery of the language. That's the, the picture that's being presented by the apostle. He is putting before us this idea of a servant, and in his servitude, he puts on the garments of servitude in order to conduct his service. Now, this is important. You, you can see here, even in the context, he's been dealing with elders and their service. He then deals with the younger, need to submit, and then all, yea, all of you, all of you, all the redeemed of the Lord, every child of God, all the elect of God, everyone that hears these words and professes faith in Christ and walks with Him, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed. That is, to be like a servant. Be like a servant who takes his apron ready for servile labor. That's the spirit. That's the call. That's the command. And it applies to everyone. It applies to me. It applies to everyone in this congregation that is redeemed by Christ, that we take upon us the apron, the labor, the garment of one who's a servant. There's no place for elevation and preeminence. Now, his desire, of course, is that they would serve each other, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. And the whole context is of that, of the service of the body, especially, of course, the elders to those that they oversee. But everyone, again, is, is called to this, this service to the body of Christ. And our, our primary service, men and women, our primary service is always to the body of Christ. You actually cannot serve God without serving the body of Christ. You can't. It's impossible. Those who do some kind of service that, that is never towards the body, has no time for the body, is not interested in the body, actually aren't serving God. The imagery that Christ has given to us repeatedly through His Word is that we are His body. And the there are many members, and those many members are all to serve one another. That pleases Him. That is true honor to Him. And that doesn't mean to say that we, we cut ourselves off from all society and community. Of course not. There is an evangelistic effort. There's a, a calling in, and a, an invitation for, for more members, for others to enjoy the feast of the gospel at the foot of Christ. But true service begins with service to the body. So if we avoid the body, if we're not interested in the body, if we're harsh towards the body, if we imagine that the body is some uh, organization that doesn't matter to us, we have misread the entirety of Scripture, predominantly the New Testament. We don't get it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. The opening three chapters, the apostle is given exposition of the gospel and the significance of that doctrinally, the, the objective experience, the, 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 the reality of, of what has come to pass through Christ's finished work. And so he has expounded all of that and the favors and the blessings that that gives to us. And then he gets very practical, Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, on the basis of all of this, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, when he speaks of the vocation wherewith ye are called, he's not talking about your job. He's not talking about the fact that you're an accountant or you're an attorney or you're a shopkeeper or whatever. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the effectual call, the call into Christ, the union you have 
that experience of being called, that which you would term as your salvation, and, and in that salvation, in that experience of salvation, was the mighty work of the Spirit of God that called you into Christ in time. So you've been called, and he speaks of it as a vocation. There's this high sense of calling. The calling into Christ to be a Christian is not something you tack onto your life. It exalts your entire way of living. Your testimony before the world is not the same as it once was. It's not just your Joe blogs from such and such an area and so on. Now the calling to Christ dominates all that you are. That whatever you're known by, whatever you do, whatever your business, whatever your family, you're now a Christian. You've been called to be one. And so what is he, how do we walk worthy? What is worthy, a worthy representation of this calling? Is it that we go around and say, hey, I'm a king and priest unto God, kiss my feet. I'm better than you. I'm superior to you. I'm mightier than you. I'm more intelligent than you. That I know the way of salvation, you don't, and you're a fool. Is that the spirit? Is that, is that? no, it's, it's the complete opposite. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering. And how is it, how is it particularly to be shown? Forbearing one another in love, looking to the body of Christ, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on to deal with what we're discussing. There is one body and one Spirit and so on, even as you're called and one hope of your calling. So we are called then to this lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing. Now none of that is easy. <laughs> none of that is easy. This is to dominate how we live our lives, Christian. This is, this is the undergirding spirit and attitude of every real believer. As he gets to the nuts and bolts of the Christian life, from chapter 4 onwards, he begins with this. You've been called. What does that mean? What does it look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like a whole group of people that esteem other better than themselves that consider one another, that forbear with one another, that aren't always honing in upon every fault to identify it and rub it in and make sure someone knows that they made a fault. No, that's not it. The spirit of forgiveness. Long-suffering. Lowliness. Meekness. And so the same apostle, Apostle Paul, writes in Romans 12, verse 10, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. This is how we serve. Turn to John 13. John chapter 13. We marvel at Christ. We marvel at his condescension. We ought to be amazed, as I've indicated already, at his willingness to suffer for us and endure such contradiction of sinners against himself. But look at this scene. Let's, let's take time to read through this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. That's, that's the prologue. That's the mini prologue into this scene. That's the apostolic introduction. That's John setting it up. All you're about to read about, his service, his humiliation, the denial, the prophecy of the denial and the subsequent denial of his disciples. Here's how we understand why Christ is doing what he is doing. 
and sticking with them even through their faults. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Simon, or Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper. Think of that. He was come from God and went to God. What would you expect? You'd expect an exhibition of His glory, His power. Let me show you, let me show you my deity. I've come from God, and I'm going to God. It's not what we see. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. This is it, being clothed with humility. That's what he's doing. He's taking the place of a servant. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. And therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Do you wince when you read that? Do you think to yourself, I'm glad I don't live in that culture? Of course, it was a common scene. It's not a common scene today. We don't, we don't have this. We don't have servants that wash our feet. It's not something that's common. So there, there's a detachment here. Certainly, there's a detachment that, in one sense, we have to keep in mind because they were familiar with this. It wasn't like this was out of the ordinary. The, the only thing was it, was it was the lowly servant of the household that would do this job. And so in our application, in our understanding of it, it's not just wincing at the idea of, you know, touching feet, someone else's feet. It's not that. That's, that's, not, that's not the problem. And you have to determine in your own mind, this is where the difficulty comes in. If I read that and there's something in me that winces, am I wincing at the fact that I'm unfamiliar with the practice, or am I wincing because I would never, I would never do anything that low? That that kind of activity is beneath me. If there's a feeling that something's beneath us, serving the Lord's people in some way, any kind of activity that the Lord may use, any kind of service is beneath us. We're not, we're not following the way of the Master. 
I have given you an example. <laughs> See, isn't this wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to think that all the exhortations through the Old Testament too, in relation to humility, warning us about pride and calling us to humility and so on, that the Lord then doesn't just think that's sufficient. Now, it ought to be sufficient. So I, I need them to get this. They need to get this. It cannot be that there exists those that proclaim that they love me, that they serve me, that they belong to me, that they're going around the world saying, I'm a Christian. It cannot be that they go around living that way, and yet they have this sense that they are above certain duty. So, so I, I, am, I am going to give them an example. He was come from God and went to God. Here is the immutable, glorious, majestic, eternal Son of God stooping to wash feet. You know, I'm bothered right now in my own mind that I know everything that I've said is true. But I struggle to feel the shock of it. I don't feel the shock of it. We should be aghast. But here's the wonderful thing. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. You want to know... You want to know how to live above the world and have a joyful spirit? Go low and stay there. People invite you up. People give you accolades. That may be the case, but, but always stay low. A young man I went through college with minister in one of our churches in Ulster now, he used to quote another man in his church that he grew up in, an older gentleman, and he could see, I think, I imagine he saw a measure of gift in this young man because he's, he's certainly a gifted preacher. And then he said it to me one day, he said the same thing, he said, brother so-and-so would always say to me, Stay low, go slow, and don't blow. Here's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. Stay low, go slow, and don't blow. Our Lord Jesus has given us an example. This is service. Humility. His power for service. Never was there one who had such power in his service. And this is how he conducted his service. With such lowliness of mind. You remember Micah chapter 6 and what the prophet has to do with there when he addresses his people. In fact, if you go there for a moment because you know the text that I'm going to turn you to. And what doth the Lord thy God require thee but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God? But and I, want you to, I want you to see the scene. Sometimes we forget the scene. Because the scene is one of ingratitude found among the Lord's people. So it's like a, it's kind of a court scene, Micah 6. And he, 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 gathers, he gathers the all of creation to witness what has gone on. Micah 6 verse 1. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. So here it comes. O my people... What have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, 
and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Wherewithal shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So here's the argument. What do you want, Lord? What what, what do you want from us? They've given your offerings and the calves, the rams. Do you you want the firstborn? What what, what is it? Then you have verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? This, 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 is, this is what I've called you to. Don't, don't misunderstand. I've, I have blessed you. I have blessed you. I have delivered you. Here's your salvation. I brought you out of Egypt. I bestowed favor upon you. When there were those who wanted to judge you and condemn you, it, it was not possible. You were so favored. And yet you, you, you're living in such a way of pride, of ingratitude. Of course, the whole world sees it. They don't see you walking justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with thy God. You think you are something. You've forgotten the basics of real service to God in the community. Thirdly, finally, humility is preparation for blessing. It is preparation for blessing. It's not just present of salvation and power for service. It's preparation for blessing. Pride is the fast-track way to judgment. You want to be judged? Be proud. Remember Pharaoh? How proud he was? With all his series of pride, and he, he is humbled to a degree, he is brought low, and then the pride inflates again, and the judgment continues. Nebuchadnezzar as well, puffed up with pride, he is brought very low. King Saul, so proud. When he was small in his own eyes, oh, when he was small, yes, he was head and shoulders above everyone, but he was small in his own eyes. And while he was in such a case and in a frame of mind, he had the favor of God, the blessing of God. But then he he becomes self-confident, self-reliant. He is given commands from God, and he he hears the command, and then he goes and he, he twists them, and then he comes and says, I've obeyed. I've obeyed. But he obeyed in his own terms. There's a pride that thinks that I can, I can hear, and, and, and we can all fall into this. We can all fall into this. It's like a, it's like a corrupt filter that, that comes across our minds and our ears. We hear, we hear the God's Word. It comes in black and white. It comes in plain terms. And it comes into this filter, and this filter has a way of kind of twisting it and turning it and distorting it where it's not what it once was. But you imagine that it's still the same thing. And so God is calling us to something, and you have this thing. This happens. This happens. It happens to those in the church. A filter that that turns plain speech, plain language from God. And it's a filter developed, created, invented by pride. It's all had it. Oh, Oh, yes. Read 1 Samuel 15, you'll see it. The Lord calls us low. He calls us low. He wants, he wants to bless us. And it's when we are low, it's then that He blesses. And if we want to be a people blessed of God, if we want to be individuals blessed of God, our families to be blessed by God, our church to be blessed by God, it always, always necessitates humility. Deep humility. We all know families. We all know families. Where the parents 
were far more enlightened, instructed, capable, well-taught, well-grounded than maybe some comparative set of parents. And in the raising, in the raising of the children, the ones that were so prepared, so equipped, so capable, so disciplined even, the children walk away. Not interested in the Lord. And some poor couple who are struggling, they're struggling. They're struggling so bad. They have to send the kids to public school. I mean, it's either that or no one eats. And they're struggling. They're doing their best, but they're struggling. If you were to go into the home, you'd see all sorts of problems. But there's a father and a mother that sob every day. God help us. God keep our children. And they grow up amidst the mess. God gets a hold of their hearts. And these children run with the Lord. See, it's not many mighty are chosen. And as soon as we imagine that salvation is by our discipline... Our brother was touching on it in the Sunday school this morning. Salvation is by discipline. Salvation is by genetics, power, capability, intellect, homeschooling. The Lord will lay us low. You have heard often quoted in the place of prayer in this place and hasn't been quoted recently very much but we would do well to bring it to mind more often in these days. What the Lord said to Israel, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. I think it's true, just as true of a family, a broken family. There's some of you, my heart bleeds for you. I wish there was something I could say. Maybe this is the word. If my people, if you humble yourself and pray, seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive your sin, heal your home. We want to be blessed, don't we? If we are going to be blessed, our humility will cause us to keep in mind the greatness of God. That's an aid to keeping us low, isn't it? The greatness of God. A man who's proud does not have God in view. He can't. How can he? How can he have God in view when he's proud? 
We referenced it. Isaiah. Isaiah 6. That year he, he saw the Lord. What did it do? Woe is me. It changed how he saw himself. It changed how... Seeing the Lord changed how he saw himself. It seems with Moses. Same as for Thomas. Sees the risen Christ. Falls down. My Lord. And my God. That which brings blessing is not only a humility that recognizes the greatness of God, it also recognizes the awfulness of sin. We need to take time to contemplate the awfulness of our sin. Not that it, not to the point of a despondency that, that causes us to wallow without relief from the gospel. Previous generations knew this better than us. They did. They understood this more than we do. The awfulness of sin. And some of it has been criticized, and there may be place for criticism of it here and there. But what I mark, what I mark is, well, what generations have known the outpouring of the Spirit? And what generation has to say, we haven't known an outpouring of the Spirit in any great degree in a number of generations? The awfulness of her sin, it throws us low. Read, read the prayers of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, lamenting their generation, but constantly it comes back to their own hearts. We have sinned. Lord, we have sinned. We have done such wickedness. That which brings blessing is a humility that recognizes the ignorance of man. Yes. You don't know it all. You don't. I don't care how many seminary degrees you have, how many times you've read through the Bible, how much experience you have, what intellect and knowledge, I don't care. We don't know. We don't know. And you can never see God work if you imagine you know. You know what to do, you have it all together. You can't see. You will never know what Jehoshaphat knew. When everyone's looking at the king, and the armies are coming and threatening, and he calls a fast. That's all he knows. What it is. call a fast. You're looking to me. You think I'm going to lead us into victory here. I have no idea. I don't know what to do. We need to pray. So he calls a fast, and they pray. And that's how he prays. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. That which brings blessing is a humility that recognizes the dispensability of self. You're not needed. <laughs> You're not needed. The Lord's work will go on. It will. And so if you imagine, if you imagine, if you, if, you look, if you look at all the mighty men that have lived in the past and you, you look at the history of the church and you see these, these periods where there were these mighty men and then you imagine that the answer then is, is, a, is another mighty man. What, what, was, what was common was these men... These men didn't see themselves as mighty. And some of them, some, some of them certainly were. As the world would look at it, they were mighty. I mean, they were. They were unusual. They were like Paul. But very many of them were not. Very many of them. Just very ordinary people. Well, we have a lot of ordinary people. Are you ordinary? I'm ordinary. Very ordinary The Lord will use us, but it doesn't depend on us. His work will go on. 
That which brings blessing is a humility that recognizes the condescension of Christ. It all goes back to the cross, doesn't it? It goes back there. It sits there daily pondering, how can it be that God should love a soul like me? How can it be? So, I want to see the Lord work. You want to grow? Christian, you want to grow? Work in humility. Yeah. Be clothed with humility. That's, that's what Peter is saying. He is, he, it's an exhortation. Don't, don't, don't sit back and say, if it's going to happen, the Spirit will work it in me, and then do nothing about it. No, he actually says, be clothed. It's imperative. It's a command. It's expecting you to do something. Be clothed with humility. Take on the garment of humility. And when there's a disagreement, a disagreement in the home, and you're ready to be like your old self, just stop. Put on the garment of humility. And with lowliness of mind, walk in the footsteps of Christ. Yes, when the Lord sees, when he sees this weak and feeble people, who have no sense of their greatness, there's such a people that he comes and he, he says, yes, I will, I will bless them. And one way humility is has to be, it has to be the precursor to blessing. If God blesses the proud, then what does he do with it? He takes to himself the glory. So there has to be this deep, this deep work in our hearts in this area so that he may in turn then entrust us such blessings that overwhelm us. May help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Let me ask you this evening, have you adorned Have you adorned yourself with the garment of humility? Have you ever found yourself at the foot of the cross weeping over your sin and pleading for mercy? As you look back over this past week, is it blotted and stained by awful sin? How have you responded to it? Ignored it? Or will you take these moments as the Spirit strives and softens your heart, applies that conviction, rubs it into the soul? He is doing that so that there might be an outpouring of grief and sorrow, of humility and repentance. You can't get from one Lord's day to the other without the strength of the Lord. If you need my help in any way, let us know. But seek the Lord while he may be found. In congregation, since this is the last time I'll address you in a number of weeks, let us all stay low, go slow, don't blow. Lord, help us. Give us grace to put on the garment of humility, to be clothed with the meekness of Christ. Help us to see that this low way 
is the highway. This path wherein our master trod is the best path for us. And as the world watches on, despises and hates us, may they not be able to say that we are a proud people. May they marvel that the greatest among us is marked by a lowly humility. Give grace, Lord. Give power and help. Be with us in our fellowship, our discussion and communion. As we close this service, bless the food downstairs and the fellowship there. Go with me as we enter into this time of preaching and rest as well. Watch over this congregation for good in all of its particulars and details. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit abide with every blood-blot child of God now and evermore. Amen.